97 South's Storytellers features conversations with professional songwriters and seeks to pull back the curtain on the art, craft, and career of songwriting. We'll bring you to those magical moments of creativity that have delivered the inspiring songs that make up the soundtrack of our lives. I'm Paul McGuire, and here's my conversation with Bob Ezrin. Bob Ezrin is a Toronto-born producer and songwriter whose storied career includes some of the most artistically influential and commercially successful recordings of the modern era, including The Wall by Pink Floyd, the entirety of Alice Cooper's output, and projects for Kiss, Peter Gabriel, Lou Reed, Aerosmith, The Babies, and not least his recent globally successful outing with Andrea Bocelli, C, which reached number one in the UK and the US. In addition to the incredible music that Bob has delivered to the world, his philanthropic work is a parallel passion with focus on climate issues and education. Bob is a member of the Canadian Music Hall of Fame and Canada's Walk of Fame. Are you, um, are you in Toronto right now? Yes, I am. Yeah. How's, how's life in Toronto these days? How's life in Toronto? It's, I don't really know because I'm, I'm away so much and uh, yeah. we just got back and then I had to go again. I had to leave and go west again to work. Go West, young man. Go West, young man. To work and then to see my kids um, in Northern okay. California and then back here. So, I mean, I've only been here for a short while and it's been really crazy. This period is really, um, it's mad because Ed Bertinsky and I have a film that is premiering at Luminato. We're opening Luminato and our film is going to be shown at Young and Dundas Square outside. We take over every digital screen in sight for three hours. And it's a loop. The film will play over and over again. But it's a, an environmental film that's based on 40 years of his career with um, a score by Phil Strong that I produced that's really, really powerful. Lovely. And I'm a co-producer of the film itself. And so we're hoping that this not only starts off the festival with a bang, but raises some awareness on an environmental level. Yeah, so that's been going on. And... What's the general focus of the film? It's a 40-year retrospective of his work of still photography and video that he has shot. And it's strung together in a narrative arc that basically takes us back to the unspoiled earth and then goes through the various stages of man's kind of destruction of our environment and comes back to the unspoiled earth at the very end. But it's done so well. I have to say, our hope was at the end of it, people would, they'd go, oh, wow, and be thinking. At the end of it, people don't, they can't say anything. They just sit there for about five minutes, some of them in tears. They're so, yeah. like, moved and overwhelmed by the imagery and, the, and, of course, the music that accompanies it and everything. So it's, I think it's a really effective tool to tell the story without beating people over the head. And then, Is it hopeful? Is it hopeful? No. No, okay. <laughs> no, I mean, not, I yeah. mean, not really. It's wh what it says is we need to get back to that, right? Yeah. We, we're not preaching and there's no language. There's absolutely no language, no. But it is, but it's hopeful in that it's possible to get back to that. You know, that it begs the question. And listen, like, I think we're at a stage now where sugarcoating things is not, it's not uh, productive. Right. That we really need to shock people into a realization that this is, this is serious shit. This is not yeah. something that's going to go away unless we all get to work. And, yeah. and we're not getting to work primarily because the story has been overwhelmed by COVID, the Ukraine, 
uh, gun violence in America. There's in, there's any number of things that are more important to talk about than our environment and the and the climate and the effect it's having on us as a country. Canada is actually experiencing global warming twice as fast as uh, countries in the in the lower uh, latitudes, right? But it's tough to get people to, uh, when they're scared to send their kids to school, to care about recycling. It's true. Yeah. But it's also, this is not an issue of recycling. No, I so know. I, I would just, It's a yeah. bigger story, right? And like any other big story, it's like smoking. How did we get people to stop smoking? We haven't, obviously, entirely, but we've done a pretty good job. Like in comparison, yeah. if you remember as a kid walking around in Canada, you did, there was nobody that didn't smoke. Yeah, everybody had a butt hanging, and me too, you know. But um, hey, cars don't have CD players anymore, but they still have ashtrays. That is interesting, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Well, so there's a place to start. But what we did was we told the story to kids, and they got scared, and they went home and said they were scared to their moms and dads, and said, "You're going to die, and we're so scared, and you got to please, please, you got to quit, and stuff like that." And I think that that was hugely effective as a way of, A, preventing the kids from taking it up, which was the first order of business, and, and B, having a knock-on effect in society. So that's where we're at with this stuff, right? We're at a place where we have to touch people with the story. What's the name of this series? Storytellers. Mm -hmm. There you go. So this is a story that has to be told, and it can't, you know, just an article here, an article there. I think these things, they're effective for a moment. But I think that when people see something or hear something that's really effective and really moves them, it's a story that stays with them and imagery that stays with them, motivates them, changes how they see the world, and maybe influences how they act. That's my hope. The title of the film is? In the Wake of Progress. In the Wake of Progress. And uh, after it hypnotizes everybody at Young and Dundas. It's going to do two nights at Young and Dundas Square to open the festival, and then it moves indoors okay. at the Canadian Opera Company uh, rehearsal facility uh, starting on the 25th of June, and it'll play for and six And then weeks. do we have any relationship with a, a streamer somewhere where the, the rest of the planet's going it's, to be able to see this? It, the thing about it is that it is a massively immersive presentation, so it's three, screen, three massive screens indoor. It requires a huge space. And, uh, okay. and basically, you're surrounded by the imagery. So this is not built for Netflix. It's not built for Netflix, but I'm, you know, I'm sure at some point we'll, we, you know, we'll talk about a more sort of single screen version of it and see if we can put it up there. But right now, I think it's really great that you know, people, hundreds or thousands or hundreds of thousands of people will wander through indoor space to see this thing. And as they leave, they're going through a gallery, which will have augmented reality uh, exhibits and some VR and some more 2D stuff and also calls to action and, and suggestions of things that can be done that people can get involved with. Okay, maybe that's a, an, an interesting place to start because there's a lot of tech going on in this particular film that you've worked on. You've always been, I think, an embracer of technology and been able to use it very well in your art. Um, and as technology has evolved or changed and new tech has come out. Um, have you enjoyed that? Have you enjoyed 
um, the digital world, for example? Have you enjoyed uh, the, the more tools you've got? Does that make it sometimes, does that complicate things? Muddy the waters? Or do you, do you love the new toys that keep coming out all the time? Well, there's a bunch of questions in there. But okay, so the answer is, do I enjoy it? Hell yeah, I love it. It's like, yeah. <laughs> it's like somebody, you know, somebody went shopping at, uh, you know, at the toy store and brought me this box full of new stuff to learn and play with. Yeah. I was always a tinkerer as a kid, you know, and I unfortunately uh, took our piano apart once uh, up at the cottage and then had trouble putting it back together. But yeah, I always loved how things worked. And um, I'm going to find out how it works. I'm going to take it apart, yeah, right. hoping to and be then, able to put it back then, together. This is a piano, one of the most complex oh instruments. My and um, <laughs> yeah, and I, you know, I, I used to do Heath kits and stuff like that. I was that yeah. kid. But I don't really know much. You know, I don't. I just sort of, I play. And then the product of that play is things start to happen. And then I follow them. You know, it's like a chemistry set. And suddenly you create something and, it, and you know, this puff of smoke turns into a character and he starts walking down the road and you follow him to see where he's going to go and help along the way. It gives ideas and stuff. So technology is a little bit like that. I would, you know, turn things on and something rather, you know, magical would happen and I would follow the magic. I like that you use the word play. I was listening to uh, an interview with uh, one of your compatriots on the Walk of Fame, Mr. David Cronenberg. Mm -hmm. um, and he was, uh, he was asked about the tech that he's used in his art over the years. Some of the very um, basic effects of heads blowing up and stuff mm -hmm. that he did in early films like Scanners, um, Videodrome, some of the more rudimentary things that he was able to do, uh, which were just incredible and haunting and terrifying and stay with me to this day. Uh, and as things have progressed, he, much like your answer there, was just like, oh, this is play. We're playing dress up. We're putting costumes on and pretending to be other people and just having a whole bunch of fun. So that's what we do. We get to go out there and play. And he used that word as well. Yeah. So how interesting. Well, you know, yeah. and I think that... It's easier for those of us who are behind the camera or on the other side of the glass, the, the people who, you know, help the, the performers to do the best that they're capable of. I mean, you know, when people say sort of, what do you do? And I say, primarily, I manage people and their ideas towards, uh, you know, a tangible end that touches other people. I mean, that's the job, is to try to get people and their ideas to come to a conclusion that moves people, that's effective. And of course, then I get to play too along the way. You know, it, it does call on my performance chops and also my ability to invent and things like that. But I'm the guy behind the guy or the woman, yeah. right? I'm not. And that's where you're happy to be. Very. I'm not the one who's out on yeah. stage. It takes a particular kind of personality to be a performer and to enjoy that place where every night you depend on the approval of thousands and thousands of people to feel good about yourself. <laughs> and that's, you know, like I'm having, I have enough trouble like everybody else feeling good about myself without that additional pressure, you know. So, yeah, I'm very happy to be where I am. And I get my validation and my sense of self from other things, things other than how people receive what I do, which I think is, you know, I, I like to think that's healthy. I didn't used to. I used to be like, I would be devastated if somebody wrote a bad review about something that I had done or if it didn't succeed or something. Oh, I would just feel like it's the end of my existence, my, my raison d'etre, you know. But now, yeah. like, I'm first and foremost, I'm a husband, a father, a grandfather, a citizen, 
you know, an educator, an, an engaged activist. I'm an activist. Yeah. And I'm a creative guy, and I like to make stuff. So, you know, one of those is working at all times, <laughs> at least one. You would hope that the insecurities would, uh, you know, fade off gradually, particularly when you look back, maybe at yeah, a pretty good track record, pretty good resume there, you know? Like, like, yeah, I've done that and that and that and that and that. And I know not everybody takes stock all the time. That would be an impossible task. But to know that you've worked hard, you got up, you showed up on time, you put in the hours and made a lot of people, it moved a lot of people, the people that you worked with and the people who were the, the consumers of the art at the end of the day. So you, you would hope that at some point you could exhale a little bit and, and not, uh, not have the insecurities. I don't think people who are makers by nature, right? I'm a maker by nature. Yeah. I don't think you ever relax. I think if, you know, if you do get to the point where you exhale and you sort of go, okay, I'm good, then you know, what's the motivation for trying harder and harder and, and more and more as you grow older? I mean, when you look at artists in other uh, disciplines, like painting, for example, or the theater or, or places like that, there are people who go on until, the, you know, the week before they, they drop. Yeah. Trying to be as good as they can and trying to do better than they did before. It's the motivation for getting out of bed in the morning. And so, you know, yeah, look, you know, I don't, at least I try not to lie in bed uh, replaying everything I did wrong yesterday. Good. Because a couple of weeks ago, things were pretty cool, you know. So I try not to do that. Yeah. But self-satisfaction is a dangerous thing. I think that's the enemy of progress. It's the enemy of inspiration. And it's certainly the enemy of, of youthfulness. It might actually be an enemy of collaboration too. the ability to collaborate if you're self, you might not be able to let people in to what you're doing. And I think a big part of what you've done over your life is you've been let in, but you also let others in. It seems to be in your career. Totally. No, you're absolutely right about that. Absolutely. There has to be a level of humility and, and it's like, you know, humility, even that is an egotistical word, right? So you don't even, it's just like, Put that stuff behind. It's not about what, what happened before. It's about what you're working on now or the, you know, the project in front of you. It's about what your cause is today, you know, what you're out marching for. And you have to invest all of your energy and thought and heart into that. You can't be looking backwards and be attending to what's ahead of you properly. Not properly. A lot of people do. A lot of people live in the past. Yeah. And they see what's in front of them through that filter, and that's all they see. And I, I think most of those people who are like that, that I've met, are not really very happy. Yeah. But I'm like, like David says, you know, Cronenberg and I are friends, by the way, and have we've known, are you really? Oh, yeah, oh, we've known each other for yeah. for decades from the Global Village yeah. days when he was making his bathtub movies, and and I was first starting to be a producer, and. Um, did you guys work together? No, we've never worked together. No. No. How about that? Okay, so if you pick up a guitar, you're like, I want to play guitar. I love playing guitar. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to join a band. That direction is understandable. People can wrap their head around that. Ah, that guy was really good at guitar. Eddie Van Halen, look in here. Here's my path. Your path is a little uh, more tough to wrap your head around, really. Um, how you got to where you are. And you've continued to evolve. You do a lot of things, a lot of different things. Um, but I'm just wondering when you think the moment happened where you realized you were doing what you were meant to be doing? Because I'm assuming that music infected you at some point, and then you wanted to get involved in music, and then you created, you were taking apart the piano at the cottage. As you said, you wanted to know how things worked. But when you became 
the guy who does the job that you are most well known for. Well, I told that story on Thursday, actually. I was just honored by Trent University with an honorary uh, Doctor of Laws on Thursday. Um, Dr. Bob, let's go. Dr. Bob. And it was as much for my environmental activism and the work that I've done with their students out there and as it was for the musical side of things. It was interesting. They were introducing me and listing my credits. And you could just look out at this crowd of 21-year-olds and they were like, who? <laughs> who? You know, <laughs> blank stares. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. but part of my speech was about what happened, you know, uh, about putting oneself in the path of opportunity and about, you know, when it comes, realizing there are people who will help you and they will share their knowledge and and their wisdom with you as long as you show the respect and do the work. Yeah. And in my case, that was at the age of 20 when I ran into Jack Richardson, arguably the greatest producer this country's ever known. And yeah. I'd already been doing music and stuff like that up until then. But I said to him, I want to be a manager. I want to work on music. I want to write songs and I want to help people with their arrangements. He goes, no, 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 no. You don't want to be a manager. You want to be a producer. I had no idea what he was talking about, but he was so impressive and in a way, you know, sort of wel so welcoming that I took the job on the spot. He just said, you want to be a producer, come work for me. And I just went, okay. So I, I took a job with Jack Richardson and then I spent every waking hour learning the craft like driving him crazy, as a matter of fact. Like every week. What did he see in you in that moment that allowed, that made him know that you were the guy to take the risk? I on? think it was my, I think it was my earnestness and my energy, you know, that he loved my energy. And there had to have been some language there, though, some, uh, the lexicon that you were familiar with or something. Well, there that was he a knew. little bit of an intro uh, because his partner, Alan McMillan, who, who really is the person to whom I owe my career, Alan was the, uh, musical director of a yearly review that used to go on in Toronto called Spring Thought. He was the musical director. I was the book editor. I was the guy putting together the jokes and all that sort of stuff. I hired Hart Pomerantz and, uh, and Lauren Michaels, you know, and other people who went on to be, you know, famous, great gag writers and stuff like that. I, I was the guy who had to hire them. I was 19 working on this show. But Alan was the music director, and, and then the decision got made that it should be a rock and roll show. And this was sort of not in Alan's sweet spot. And I had been co-managing a band with Michael Cole called Icarus, yeah. the lead singer of which was Eddie Schwartz, who wrote Hit Me With Your Best Shot. And Cole thought managing them meant booking them into clubs and stuff like that. And I thought it meant working on their songs and material and things. So, but anyway, yeah. they needed a rock thing for the show, so we snuck Icarus in, they became the sort of onstage band. Then I went out to find the music and then I worked with them on the arrangements and stuff. And at, at one point, Alan went, you have to meet my partner. We need a guy like you. Okay. And so I went and met with Jack and, and told him yeah. all the things that I did and said, I, I, I want to be a manager. I want to work for you as a manager. And Jack said, no, you know, you don't. So, so you got the vouch. Somebody vouched for you. That's kind of cool. Somebody vouched for me. Yeah. I don't know that yeah. that would have happened just by accident. And Jack was incredibly generous. Unbelievably generous. Yeah. And, and he, you know, it wasn't hard for him to be generous with me because I was so willing. And actually, you know, once I had the permission, I, I sort of have this 
philosophy about a permission-based life, you know? Yeah. I got the permission to ask the questions, and then I never stopped asking. And, and like we'd be on an airplane, I would drive them crazy. Okay, so the, uh, the 87 has this kind of a capsule. Why is that, and how does it work? And then you put this over here, and he'd be like, I just want to sleep, please. But, <laughs> but then he would go, okay, and he would tell me everything and walk me through it. And then he sent me to school. He sent me to the Eastman School of Music in Rochester for a two-week course in music engineering with Phil yeah. Ramone. I, you know, I had no idea what that was about. And then Phil loved me because I had this attitude and Jack had sort of set me up and he said, you're going to love this kid. He's really smart and really eager. And so I went and Phil said, okay, you're so smart. You're so eager. Here's a tape machine. Here's a console. Mix that song for me and left. Yeah. Yeah. And left the room. And I was like, uh, you know, it was yeah. an A track. I had never seen anything like it. And um, and there was this- What kind of music was it? This little board. I was some rock band. I can't remember who. Yeah, okay. And so I had to make a mix of this rock song, you know, out of like, uh, you know, what happens if you do this? And that was actually one of the greatest lessons I'd ever learned was to sit there and have to construct something that somebody else had put together, had to, you know, reconstruct it into a listenable whole. I like that way of- creating things. I love the idea of working backwards. Visualize the whole, and then in your mind, imagine the, the construction of it, and then deconstruct that back to the pieces that you have to make in order to create it. It's exactly what Cronenberg does. He sees Is it. Is that right? Oh, yeah, for sure. He sees the yeah. picture. He knows what he wants. And then he walks back in his mind the steps that will be necessary to get there, right? So he knows that... He, yeah. To get that shot. Does that leave room? Does that, does that leave room for accidents? Happy totally, accidents? Always. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, unless you're an idiot, when a, ha <laughs> when a happy accident occurs, you know, you don't go, nah, get out of here. You know, <laughs> you know, when you hear something great, I mean, a good, what's a good example? A good example is, is the solo at the end of uh, another brick in the wall part two. You want to talk about happy yeah. accidents? Well, this actually wasn't quite an accident. I set it up, but I knew that Gilmore was brilliant on a first take. And the more he thought about himself, the more um, sort of considered and not quite as spontaneous things would become. And there's a, just a brilliance about that man on first impression. So I lied to him and I said, uh, look, I just need to get levels on the back end of the song. Will you just... And I had the idea for a sound... I didn't know if it was going to work, but I just thought if I wanted to sound like this and I sort of walked backwards and thought, well, I should do this and this, put it together, but a happy accident occurred. It sounded different from what I had imagined, but it was brilliant. It sounded so good and it inspired him. And he played that solo that's on that record right then and there. First take. Holy shit. Holy shit. It was a holy shit moment. Oh, yeah, I mean, not that we need to keep comparing it to the world of acting or anything like that, but I've heard stories about directors saying, listen, we're not rolling on this one. We just want to walk through it. Always. Meanwhile, the cameras are all rolling. Always. Yeah. Always. Yeah. <laughs> well, because, I you know, that. again, as we were saying earlier on, a person who is a performer, you know, they are, by, by definition, they have to be self-conscious. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the ones who do the best You let work, them get out of their way. That's right. And that is actually a lecture series that I do for students, which is getting out of your own way. Uh, because, you know, we are, our, our egos, our fears, you know, our 
judgmental natures, those things are the things that get in the way of our realizing our, our full potential. So I had buttons, you know, made that it was WAM with a Ghostbusters circle and a line through it, right? And, it, it, and the WAM stands for what about me? What about me? You know, when you walk into a room, your nature is to be in a what about me mode. You're not thinking, you're not looking around, naturally speaking. You're not, and by the way, this is actually kind of a survival mechanism. You're not looking around, just taking in the vista, but you're actually gauging what everyone is thinking about you as you walk in the door. Yeah. And in the process of, of being in a what about me mode, you miss a lot of shit. And one of the things when I'm talking to young people, I say, you know, you walk into a room thinking, am I cool? Do I look good? How's my clothes? Are they looking at me? You know, what are the girls thinking? All that stuff. In the meantime, they're all standing around going, am I cool? How are my clothes? What do I look like? And yeah. they don't even see you, you know, yeah. then you don't see them. So, um, yes, if you can remove self-consciousness and it's not easy, it's way easier yeah. to say than it is to do. But if you can remove it. And suddenly open your heart and your eyes and your ears and your, all your senses to what's going on around you. It's amazing how many miracles are sandwiched in between the obvious things. Um, and you can get to pick them and you can yeah. follow them down, you know, that road, those little magical beings that are created. You follow them down the road. Um, you were saying that you like to, um, to see something and be able to kind of organize it. Uh, tell me if I've got the story correct. When you worked with Trent Reznor on a Nine Inch Nails project, The Fragile, I think, Trent was having trouble seeing it in a linear fashion, seeing mm. the story from beginning, middle to end. And you came in and were able to help him do that. And you kind of came in, you were like an assassin, incredibly efficient. And he's like, oh, and you revealed his project to him. Can you tell me a little bit about that? It's not dissimilar to sort of what I brought to this film as well. You know, there's a, in my head, there's a story to everything. And stories have an arc. They have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And and finding the story is sometimes really easy. Sometimes it just sort of presents itself. And sometimes you create to the story. Sometimes you have the story first before you have the stuff. And then you make the stuff to suit the story, as in The Wall, for example. We had a lot of the stuff, but it was motivated by a particular you know, mood that Roger was in at the time and, and something he wanted to reveal of himself about his personal history and so on. And so he went out to write the story of, you know, the story of him, the losing his dad when he was very little and, and the disapproving women and the school experiences and all that sort of stuff. And he wrote to that. Now, when we got together, and I'll get back to your Nine Inch Nails, but when we got together yeah, yeah, and he played it for me, it was basically a 90-minute biographical, fairly one-note piece, you know, that dwelt too much inside of his bruised psyche. And even though it was brilliant, 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 no two ways about it. And some of the lyrics were beyond anything I'd ever heard before. And, you know, some of the music yeah. was just so simply brilliant. But the story was, was a little bit, for me, a little flat. It's we had made we had set up the premise in the beginning and then we just kind of stayed there all the way through until we got to the, uh, you know, just to school and the ending and that sort of stuff. So we started looking at it in a different light and we started saying, you know, like, well, first of all, you know, limiting it to his uh, biography in a certain way 
means that we're missing out on a whole lot of stuff we can look at in terms of the human condition. It's, he's not the only person who's been through experiences like this. And perhaps what we can come up with is a more... The universality of the story, right. Sure. And maybe we come up yeah. with a more of a gestalt figure. So, you know, I had said, look, you had this guy pink in the, you know, in the past. Why don't we make this his story? Why don't we make him the kind of universal broken rock star and use a broken rock star as a symbol for broken people of all kinds. And we created a new arc. And then I literally wrote a script for The Wall yeah. and brought it in one day and we did a table read. The script was based on the songs that existed and the ones that didn't yet exist. So it told the story and then there's a scene here and it says, well, this is where Pink checks out and is no longer communicative and is stuck in his hotel room. And it's in D. Don't know what it is yet, but I know it's in D because of the song that it comes from and the song that it's going to. I know the connective tissue and all that stuff. Oh, my God. And You're like storyboarding a little storyboarding, bit. Storyboarding, not a little bit, yeah. entirely. Yeah. We, we did a, you know, a full-on I've got the screen. It's actually in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but I, I, I have it. Awesome. And, um, yeah. and that helped. You know, that was, that was the... Uh, that became, as you say, the storyboard, the script for the project, and we built to that script. So Nine Inch Nails, similar thing. Now, Nine Inch Nails, in the case of Trent Reznor, what I was looking for, there were a number of stories in the, in the songs that he had already written. And by the way, I got delivered like hours and hours of stuff he had been recording. And uh, <laughs> there was so much of it. And I asked him, you know, is it okay to lose some of this? You say like an assassin, you know, I, I mean, I'd sort of like to think of it in a more positive light, but, but I was... <laughs> I just meant really if, I was, efficient. I Let's was go. surgical. Yeah. I surgical. was surgical. Surgical, I love it. And he gave me permission to do so. I actually even did one version of it that was a single disc. And I said, if you're really, really brave, you'll do this one but he couldn't stand it because it left out material that was really near and dear to his heart, told the story really well, but it left out things that, that he loved. So somewhere in all of this stuff, I fell on the relationship between these two broken people, she more than he. And it not unlike uh, the story that was in the Berlin album that I did with Lou Reed many, many years before, mm -hmm. you know, a, a, a kind of, a dysfunctional, dangerous relationship, but where she's much worse than he is. And so that was the story that he tries to save her. He does everything yeah. he can. And in the end, sadly, he is not able to do so. And there was no light at the end of that tunnel. But then I started to look at all the pieces in those, in, in those terms and began to put things together, not just in terms of the, how, you know, where they fit in the story, but also, again, connective tissue. You don't want something that's really slow and dirgy and it's in G minor and it goes into something else that's really slow and dirgy in G minor because it'll just, um, it'll be boring. <laughs> yeah. It'll just be boring. So that's how that came together. And I think that, was I think it was really useful to him. I think he, to this day, is appreciative of it, you know. Sometimes these guys, again, it, it's almost like getting out of their own way with this. An artist can be too close to something, like with, you were mentioning with Roger Water. Mm. Some, sometimes people are too close to something. They need to either get the 30,000-foot view of it or bring in somebody else who can add some, um, some perspective. It's hard to have a 30,000-foot view of your, of your own self. 
of your own. Of course it is. It's yeah. very difficult, right? I mean, some people can. Some people can, you know, they do through transcendental meditation or other things, they can leave their bodies in a way and look down on themselves and have a different point of view. But that's a, that's a rare, rare uh, ability. And I'm not sure whether it's a talent or a curse. Yeah. Because I think, you know, I think at the end of the day, like it, the best thing that any of us can do is just be ourselves, you know, and some of us are flawed. And, well, not some. All of us are flawed on a certain level, right? We're all flawed. There's nobody perfect. So we live with our flaws. And as long as we're not defeated by our own self-consciousness, a certain amount of it is not a terrible thing, right? Yeah. And then have somebody, you know, if you're not defeated by your self-consciousness, you can usually accept help from somebody as long as you trust them. Yeah. And you feel comforted by them and their presence, right? So when I got to his studio, Nothing Studios in New Orleans, like it, yeah. it's a shrine to the wall. Is that right? Oh my God. Like every, everything on the walls was all the artwork and all the stuff. It was everything in there was about the wall which turned out to be his favorite album of all time. So This I, is Trent Reznor, his studio in New Orleans. Yes. Did you know that he was uh, an acolyte of Pink no. Floyd and of your work? No? No. What, <laughs> he didn't warn you before you showed up, well, by I the way? Well, I only spoke to his manager. I didn't speak to him. Okay. He was really in, you know, in the weeds. He was deep in it. Yeah. And I think maybe it's, you know, maybe somebody, maybe Jimmy Iovine or, or the, uh, you know, who was the head of the label at the time, or the manager said, um, you know, he's a real fan of, what you did with the wall or something. Right. He may, may have said that, but I mean, you, you know, those conversations come and go and you're busy doing other sure. things. But when I got there, you know, I got out of the car and went into the studio, which, which is not, by the way, was an old mortuary. So from the front, it looks like a funeral home. And you go in the, the front door and down into the sort of bowels where I know that they were preparing the bodies. I know the room I was in working in must have been one of those, you know, mortuary rooms. And the first thing you see is just, you know, Pink Floyd artwork uh, from the wall, on the walls. And Trent told me it was his favorite album. Interestingly, we didn't talk a lot. We had a, we had a few conversations. We had a lunch and um, general stuff, but it wasn't like he was in the room with me all the time and we were discussing what, what I was doing. I think that he was very happy to have somebody take this and put a different, a new spin on it so that he could hear it in a, in a new way. And I think it sort of reconnected him with the project, made him even more excited about it than he was before because he saw it in a new light. Thanks for listening. This has been Storytellers. Join me, Paul McGuire, live this summer with Kim Mitchell, Glass Tiger's Alan Frew, 5440's Neil Osborne, and many others for an experience you'll remember always. The 97 South Song Sessions Songwriters Festival is happening this July, the 21st to the 23rd, in Penticton, British Columbia's incomparable wine country. An intimate, bluebird-style music performance that features songwriters in the round, playing their hits and relating stories of a life in music. Tickets and information at 97southsongsessions.com. Download the free Stingray Music mobile app and listen to the 97 South Song Sessions channel today. Stingray Music. Life's on you. Music's on us.